0: No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands." They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: A friend of mine uh, who has been actively serving our community for many years told me this week that she felt tired and discouraged. And she said something like this. She says, you know, we've spent millions of dollars, thousands of hours trying to solve the problems of our city. We've prayed, we've preached, we've given, but I don't feel like we've moved the needle at all. Now, I think my friend who... uh, I think I caught at a pretty tired moment, um, was overstating the case, but I can identify with how she feels. Seeking the peace of the city, which we're wrapping up tonight, there's one more thing I want to look at tomorrow, before, next Sunday before Advent, but this is the, kind of the end of the series. It can seem like an impossible goal, and in one sense it is. We we live in a fallen world. Uh, Satan, though defeated, still works through systems and structures and even people to, to, to hinder human flourishing. And the kingdom of God, which is the reign of Christ on the earth and marked by peace, uh, has only partly come. And so for now, the church advances three steps forward, two steps back. But one day, God will bring peace. Peace. To the city. He makes this promise in the passage that we just read, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25. Isaiah was an 8th century urban prophet who counseled Israel's leaders during a time of national crisis. And if you want to read a little bit about what was going on during his career, read the book of 2 uh, Kings. It was a terrifying time. Uh, the Assyrian army to the, mo- to the north, which was the most wicked and cruel army that uh, the, that part of the world had ever seen, uh, cruel and terrible to its victims, was threatening to come down and take over Israel. Ignoring the prophet's warnings, Israel's kings decided to turn away from God and to make backroom deals to keep the peace. But Assyria attacked anyway, came down, devastated the ten northern tribes wiped them out forever. And this tiny southern kingdom of Judah was left just just hanging on a thread. Its capital, Jerusalem, struggled to survive. Now, Isaiah was familiar with Jerusalem. That was where the kings met and led. Uh, he often walked the halls of power. He had relationships with the different kings. And he knew the city well. And throughout the book of, of Isaiah, you get different... Um, descriptions of what the city was like it had the nickname of forsaken and desolate Uh, her priests would cry out to god in bewilderment asking an empty heaven where is your compassion and sometimes isaiah would would preach severe sermons calling for repentance and and sometimes the people did repent Uh, he offers a prayer of repentance on behalf of his people uh, You were angry with us, but we went on sinning. In spite of your great anger, we've continued to do wrong since ancient times. All of us have been sinful. Even our best actions are filthy. Because of our sins, we're like leaves that wither and are blown away by the wind. Nobody turns to you in prayer. No one goes to you for help. You have hidden yourself away from us. You've abandoned us because of our sins. You're our Father, Lord. We're like the clay and you're the potter. You created us. Don't be too angry with us. Don't hold our sins against us forever. We're your people. Be merciful. Your sacred cities are like a desert. Jerusalem is a deserted ruin. And our temple, the sacred and beautiful place where our ancestors praised you, has been destroyed by fire. All the places we loved are in ruins. Lord, are you unmoved by all this? Are you going to do nothing and make us suffer more? So that gives you a little bit of a sense of the, the anguish, the anxiety that the people of Israel uh, felt during this period. The citizens of Jerusalem are very discouraged. They're, they're scratching out a fearful existence in a city that knows little of God's peace. But against this backdrop, God comforts His people by giving them a vision of the new city that He will one day create. For behold, God begins, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Three times God will say, I create this city. And this is a, a rare Hebrew word that is only used for God as the subject. It's used in Genesis 1 In the first verse of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the same almighty power that created the earth will one day create and recreate this great city, this new Jerusalem. And the rest of the prophecy describes the characteristics of the new Jerusalem. And the first characteristic of this city that God will one day create is joy. Now, Isaiah's Jerusalem uh, didn't know much about joy it was filled with anxiety and sadness and, and this began under the reign of king jeroboam in 746 bc when he died israel had five different kings over the next 10 years three of whom who took the throne by violence uh, the country was plunged into a civil war the prophet hosea describes the, the country as totally without law and order that it had completely collapsed and then Assyria finally does uh, come down with full force, wiping out the northern kingdom. Jerusalem was left, but Assyria said, if you don't want us to attack you, you have to pay heavy taxes. And so they paid taxes, they couldn't afford it, so they had to strip the temple, sell off all their holy ornaments and in order to keep the, the, the wolf at bay. And so to this community that was just rife with anxiety, God Promises that one day there will be a new Jerusalem full of joy. Be glad, he says, an emotion they hadn't felt in years. Rejoice in what I create. The new Jerusalem I make, it will be full of joy. Her people will be happy. I'll be filled with joy because of her people. The second characteristic of this new Jerusalem will be health. Uh, Life expectancy in the ancient world was very short it was especially so in a city, a city that was living in the shadow of the most terrifying army in the world. Uh, children often died from famine and disease. Few grew into old age. But God promises the citizens uh, that in the new Jerusalem, there will be health. Babies will no longer die in infancy. And all people will live out their lifespan. Those who live to be a hundred will be considered young. To die before that would be a sign that I'd punished him. So he's using poetic speech to describe a a community where everyone is enjoying robust health. A third characteristic of the New Jerusalem, economic opportunity. I have a friend who is from the Middle East, and he told me once uh, that he cannot visit the home where his uh, ancestors grew up. And he said it's because armies came in, took the home over, and now someone else lives there. He said that uh, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, of the family's resources are left in the city. And now they can have no access to it because of the war. That's probably not happened to most of us. America, thankfully, does not have those experiences. But that kind of thing happened a lot in the ancient world, especially in, in Israel. And so... What God is saying to to a community that knows, and some had experienced their whole life savings, their house, everything wiped out in one terrifying afternoon, God is saying it's not going to be like that in the new Jerusalem. People will build houses and get to live in them. They'll not be used by someone else, he says. They'll plant vineyards and enjoy the wine and won't be drunk by others. Like trees, my people will live long lives. They'll fully enjoy the things that they've worked for. The work they do will be successful. Fourth characteristic of the New Jerusalem, the blessing of children. Uh, Infant mortality rates were very high in the ancient world, but this was particularly true in cities that were at risk of war. Famine and disease often took the lives of little ones. Uh, They often grew up without any hope. But God says, in the New Jerusalem, their children will not meet with disaster. I'll bless them in their descendants for all time to come. A fifth characteristic of the New Jerusalem, intimate knowledge of God. Jerusalem was the holy city for Israel, home of God's temple. But it had fallen into terrible spiritual decline at this point. Uh, The religious leaders worked for the state and were not able to to speak truth to power. Uh, They seemed to think, if we read Isaiah, that if they just kept offering the sacrifices, that everything would be okay. There wasn't any sense of knowing the Lord. God Himself, in the first verses of chapter 65, diagnoses their spiritual condition. He says, I was ready to answer my people's prayers. They didn't even pray. I was ready for them to find me. They didn't even try. The nation didn't pray to me even though I was there. I've always been ready to welcome my people who stubbornly do what is wrong and go their own way. They shamelessly make me angry. They offer pagan sacrifices at sacred gardens. They burn incense on pagan altars. At night they go to caves and tombs and even consult the spirits of the dead. They eat pork and drink broth made from meat offered in pagan sacrifices. And they say to each other, Keep away from us. We're too holy for you to touch. I can't stand people like that. My anger against them is like a fire that never goes out. So when Isaiah offers this prophecy, it is at a time of tremendous spiritual decline. But he says, One day there will be this city, this new Jerusalem, when even before they finish praying to me, I will answer their prayers. One day God's people will be so close to him in this city that... Uh, they, 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 will, they will not even have to say the prayer before it's answered. Everyone in the city will enjoy an intimate knowledge of God. The last characteristic of uh, the New Jerusalem, reconciliation, unity, and safety. When communities are under extreme pressure, they, they often turn on each other. Leaders grasp for power. Factions tear through the city. Neighbors turn against neighbor. And this appears to be what was happening in in Jerusalem. Uh, Micah was a prophet who who spoke to Jerusalem the same time Isaiah did. He describes the city like this. He says, When morning comes, as soon as they have the chance, they do all the evil they planned. When they want fields, they seize them. When they want houses, they take them. No one's family or property is safe. The Lord replies, You attack my people like enemies. Men return from battle thinking they're safe at home, but there you are waiting to steal the coats off their backs. You drive the women of my people out of the homes they love. You've robbed their children of my blessing forever. Get up and go. There's no safety here anymore. Your sins have doomed this place to destruction. So the Jerusalem that Isaiah is speaking to has become a very violent city. And yet God says in the New Jerusalem... Wolves and lambs will eat together. Lions will eat straw as cattle do, and snakes will no longer be dangerous. And God says, on Zion, my sacred hill, there will be nothing harmful or evil. So in God's new city, enemies will be reconciled in fellowship together, citizens will walk the streets in safety, and the city will know peace. So these are the characteristics of uh, the New Jerusalem, a city that, that fully enjoys God's blessing, where the curse is lifted. Joy, health, economic opportunity, the blessing of children, an intimate knowledge of God, reconciliation, unity, and safety. Now, what I want to do a little bit here is, is talk about how the people that, I, that first heard this prophecy would have understood it and how we should understand it today. It's not easy to always read prophetic literature. It's hard to know how to apply it to us today. So what would this prophecy have meant to the people who first heard it? You know, it could sound like kind of a cruel joke, You know, like God saying, hey, I know your life is miserable now, uh, but good news, someday, long after you're dead, uh, I'll create a new city where it won't be like that anymore. I don't think that's how they heard it. In Isaiah's prophecy of the New Jerusalem, to an Israelite, God would have been describing the coming of the future kingdom of God. See, for an Old Testament Israelite, that kingdom was part of God's promise to Abraham and David, and God was going to build the kingdom on earth, and the capital of that kingdom was going to be Jerusalem. And so Isaiah's readers would have seen this promise as applying to the rebuilding of their own city and the future reign of God's kingdom on earth. And so it's not surprising that the the Hebrew word that God uses for I create is a participle that can mean I will create and I'm even now creating. So there there is the sense that the future, this vision of hope that he's giving, he's even now in the process of bringing to pass. And I'm quite confident that when Ezra went back to rebuild the temple, when Nehemiah went back to rebuild uh, the walls, that they were encouraged by this prophecy, that they felt God was going to rebuild their city, that the kingdom would would come for them in that way. Now, eight centuries later, Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah more than any other uh, prophet in describing that kingdom. But Jesus clarifies and expands the Old Testament teaching on the kingdom. And this is important, or we'll get confused. Jesus preaches that the kingdom of God has already come to earth. Lots of verses on that. Matthew 12, 28 is one of them. But at the same time, he preaches that the kingdom has not yet come to earth. It won't come until he returns, Mark 14, 24. And so, when you bring these two aspects of the Lord's teaching together, and this is why it's hard to understand the teaching on the kingdom in the Gospels, is because their intention sometimes the Lord says the kingdom's here, it's broken in. Sometimes the Lord says the kingdom's coming and it won't be here in fullness until I return. What we have when we put them together is that God has decisively begun the kingdom of God on earth through Christ, but it won't be fully established until Christ returns. So, what are we to do in the meantime? Well, Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. In the in-between time, in the already and not yet, we are to be partnering with Him in bringing the vision into the present. Bringing the hope into the world Now, so while on the one hand, we know that God is the one who ultimately will bring Shalom to our city tomorrow, we can celebrate the privilege of working for that Shalom today. Nicholas Woltersorff, the theologian, puts it like this. He says, Shalom is both God's cause in the world and our human calling. We are not to stand around hands folded waiting for Shalom to arrive. We are workers in God's cause, His peace workers. The mission of God is our mission. And in a book on this whole subject, a good book, Ray Bakke called The Theology of the City, he reflects on Isaiah's vision after 40 years of seeking the peace of Chicago. And he says, put simply, if this is what God says a city ought to look like, and if God's Spirit lives in me, this is what I want Chicago to look like. So in a similar way, we want Knoxville to look as much like the new Jerusalem as it possibly can before Christ returns. Well, thanks to years of wrestling with this passage and others like it, I believe that my understanding of the gospel has expanded. Uh, My understanding of the gospel is a little bit different than it was when I left the seminary 25 years ago. Uh, In seminary, I learned that the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross, a gift we must receive by faith. And I still believe in that with all my heart. I cling to the cross for my salvation and my sanctification. But the texts that we've been studying this fall have led me to believe that the gospel I learned in seminary, while true, is not big enough. It's too small. Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom touches all of life, including our sinful souls, but not ending there. So today I I have a broader understanding of the gospel, and I've tried to share that with you. I like the definition of the gospel written by my friend Rick Dunn who is the senior pastor of Fellowship Church, and if we could have that, the gospel is God's offer of new life, given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, to transform individuals, families, communities, and cities into his new creation. I think understanding the gospel this way is not to deny the work of the cross, I think it's to appreciate the work of the cross even more deeply. I remain firmly committed to the work of evangelism. I pray for eight people almost every day with whom I'm sharing the gospel. I meet weekly with spiritual seekers who want to learn more about the way of Christ. I correspond with seekers via email. I give away gospel books and podcasts that share the faith. I eat at the same restaurants at lunch so I can build relationships with servers and hopefully witness to them. I coach an urban swim team and pray for them almost every day, not that they will learn how to swim better only, but that they will also come to know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But I'm, I'm much more aware today than I have ever been aware today that my responsibility to my neighbor does not end with my witnessing to him. I need to seek my neighbor's peace. And I'm convinced that this, too, is the Bible's command. Martin Luther King, preaching to the graduating class of Oberlin College in the spring of 1965, uh, wrote words that I heard years ago and they've haunted me ever since. Dr. King said, All I'm saying is simply this, that all life is interrelated but somehow we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. You know, honestly, I did not understand that when I arrived in Knoxville in June of 1987. Uh, I loved the people in my church and in my neighborhood, I tried to care for them well, but I, I had no awareness that I was somehow connected with the third grader in Mechanicsville or the widow in Vestal. Someone told me uh, recently or this week about uh, their daughters teaching in an urban high school or urban elementary school, and one of the, the little boys said that uh, he w- they were talking about what they were thankful for, and he said he's very thankful that his dad got a job. And she said, why is that? He says, well, now we can get milk. And then she said, well, most kids don't like, <laughs> you know, what, what, what about the milk? And, and he said, well, I have to take this medicine, and when I take it with water, I get sick. But if I can take it with milk, uh, I don't. And so I'm thankful for the milk. And I think what I, what I never understood was there is a sense in which uh, that little boy is my son. Uh, there's a sense in which that little boy is my brother. And that it's not enough for me to arrange my life Uh, in such a way that I avoid uh, the dark sides of town for fear they might hurt my children. I think I'm starting to learn that the gospel begins with salvation from sin, but it ultimately expands to a great rescue of all that is evil for those who respond. Caleb came into my office one day and gave me a sheet of papers that he had found in an old backpack. And uh, they turned out to be uh, rap songs that a young man from our city, an inner city youth, uh, had written before he went away to prison. And um, I wanted to read part of one to you because it, it, it struck me just how different his experience of life in Knoxville was from many of our children. Um, I, I have edited some of it, um, but I, I couldn't edit it entirely or, or it would be robbed of the rawness of, of what the young man was feeling. He writes, I would be shot down, but I feel bulletproof. I'm not where I want to be at the age of 26. F, Tennessee, you all can have this place. You can't take a piss without the police in your face. This wouldn't be happening if it was carjacking. I feel violated and more. I don't know how to say it. 2010 was supposed to be my summer. Now I'm headed to the pen. Done, lost my car. Expletive, I can't win. Now I got to start over again. Sell a little crack, make some new friends, dish out the end. You got monkey on your back. I give the nigga a banana. I don't know uh, this young man's name, but after... Almost 20 years of sitting with Isaiah 65, I now understand that he's my neighbor and that he has no peace. I can't save him. But I can work for the peace of the city that this young man feels cursed by. And so can you And this, I think, is the vision of our church. This is what it means to seek the peace of the city. That together, by word and deed, we join God in building his kingdom. We pray and we preach and we scrub and we hammer so that our city can become a place where angry children can grow up instead blessed and safe and healthy where they can find joy and earn a living, and where they can come to know the God who weeps over their rap songs. And I believe this is the heart of gospel work.